Ah, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Outward Unleashed. How are you doing, Carl? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure entirely. Uh, maybe you could just tell us uh, what it is you do. What keeps you busy? Uh, many things, but I think uh, what we're here to talk about is um, something that's, uh, I would call almost an obsession of mine, and that's magical anthropology. Uh, I think that some other people have, have coined that also, but I did early on in my life sort of come up with the idea of a specific anthropology that deals with uh, magic, how people throughout history and uh, in different cultures have, you know, resonated with and, and the relationship with magic as such. And the more you scratch the surface, the more you find um, that it's incredibly integrated, I would argue, even on a genetic level. And historically, it's been with us all along. And even in these times, which are sort of hyper-rational, hyper-empirical, uh, we are completely immersed in magical thinking, magical behavior, ritual thinking, etc etc regardless which culture we're from fascinating so how are you using the word magic here are we referring to sort of pulling bunnies out of hats or is this a word for the supernatural perhaps yeah I, more more on the supernatural strain but even that you know it's so hard to define because everyone has you know their own terminology and it's often um biased and in uh, sort of influenced by religions uh, so you have to uh, they're basically in my mind two different ways of approaching the definition and i'm sure you're aware of of uh, alistair crowley uh, who was such a prime mover in bringing you know the supernatural kind of magic into the 20th century or modern times and you know he came up with this definition that magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will and that's a pretty stripped um, definition it means that you know if i want to see a film i go to a cinema and i buy a ticket you know, those are the rituals to see to see experience this uh, film. However, uh, when we say supernatural, uh, we also take into account, let's call it the transcendental, the personal, um, supra-sensual um, experience. For instance, you and I go to the movies and we see a film that we both like, you know, um, and we say this thing that, whoa, that was really magical. That's a kind of a word of, of uh, inflation in a way, because what does it mean? It usually means that it was like beyond belief. It was like so good we can hardly express it, meaning there's a kind of a transcendental uh, aspect to it. Um, and I think that if you look at, again, different culture, different historical times, uh, there is an inherent need, I would argue, in human cultures to approach this transcendence through, for instance, trances, uh, psychedelic experiences, uh, dances, of course, use of sex, uh, anything that you know moves you away from the strictly rational way of thinking and acting. Um, so I would say that uh, we have Crowley's on the one hand, which is a causal, cause and effect kind of magic. And then of course, there's the thing which is like, what if, what if I do a ritual 
just you know come up with my own or follow something from history uh, to achieve something which is not rational which is not causal and just see what happens and then that thing happens or it doesn't happen then you're on your own sort of proto-experimental uh, magical trip but i think that um, uh, in terms of myself uh, i am more prone today to you know, be interested in this sort of what you, you would call the supernatural, the one that has to do with transcendences, that has to do with the beyond belief kind of thing. Because uh, uh, once you know a thing, how to causally manipulate the world, then it, it doesn't really uh, have that sort of uh, magical glamour, does it? It's just, you know, cause and effect. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot lot to pick up there. So, I, yeah, the, the word magical, I suppose it's indispensable to the human experiences that we've all had. You know, experiences that are hard to put into to words, you know, these the, the, the word spiritual as well, I think, indispensable yes. in some places. But I suppose where my interest is in this is as a sort of self-professed skeptic is whether or not any natural laws have actually been, in you know, violated at any point. Do you do you come down on a hard rationalist side? Are you, are you open to the idea of natural laws being oh, uh, absolutely. violated? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the if we if this, these are all very, very, you know, simplified uh, observations that I'm doing now for, for the sake of time and, and uh, simplicities, basically, we can see that throughout the so-called, you know, magical history, uh, which is usually under the umbrella of, of religious studies, religious histories, um, many fields of what I usually call proto-experimentation uh, have later on uh, been churned through the empirical uh, grind in a way and become established science. That's really how we look at things. There's always the question, the speculative question of what if, and then if that brings, um, you know, a hypothesis, then it's taken into the empirical uh, mind frame and looked at and sort of does this have uh, empirical validity? Can it be repeated? You know, and it's the same thing. You know, alchemy led to chemistry. Um, astrology led to astronomy. Uh, uh, healing arts led to our kind of allopathic medicine. You know, so there are many things that have been experimental um, uh, mind frames and behaviors within this, I would call it almost like a profession, within the magical profession, where the, the old shaman or, or even the witch, you know, uh, all of these people have been experimenting with things because they have been guided by, you know, their own intuition, wanting in a kind of proto-scientific way, find out more about these things. And I think we have a long way to go still if we look at topics and objects that magicians uh, or esoteric scholars, whatever we want to call them, proto-scientists, have been dealing with throughout the, not only the centuries, but actually millennia. Uh, and today, of course, we have become, uh, during the 20th century, become quite abstracted uh, with, with uh, quantum aspects of physics, for instance, uh, meaning that up until then, we looked at with you know, the aid of um, optics, we could look in a microscope or a telescope, what our own senses couldn't fathom and take in, we've been able to, to study closely and at a distance and then make our own uh, sort of empirical deductions based on that. 
but now we're delving more and more into let's call them invisible territories you know um, can we watch the splitting of an atom not really but we can you know uh, be our houses can be heated by it or we can destroy many things uh, through atomic bombs so when you delve into the uh, literally occult, you know, occult is Latin meaning hidden. When we delve into the hidden aspects of nature as such, of course, there are natural laws. We already know that. But th I think there's a lot more to be found out um, simply because of the fact that we have a tendency to overvalue, uh, let's call it the deductive magic the cogitations of the brain, you know, that's not the same as insight. It's not the same as wisdom. It can lead to that, but it's not immediately the same. So um, I believe that um, uh, there's a lot more to be learned, of course. And I do believe that technology can uh, bring a lot of advantages to delving even deeper into these so far hidden aspects of natural laws. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, if we're talking about sort of hidden aspects, don't we have an issue there, though, that once they are discovered and empirically tested, they simply just become part of the body of our knowledge of the natural world and just further our understanding of the natural world rather than denoting something supernatural or magical? Right. No, absolutely. It becomes it moved in a way to a different category of, of understanding from the so-called supernatural into the natural, because what we call natural is something that we can understand about nature, because sure. there are many things we still don't, you know. Uh, and and um, so I think, again, it's just a matter of terminology and definition. And and uh, I'm certainly definitely not an, an um, you know opponent to empirical science. Absolutely not. However, I do find it interesting that, that uh, when you look at uh, scratch the surface of the empirical uh, structure in a way, the basis of it, the foundation of it is irrational speculation, you know, because you can't have a thesis or a hypothesis or, or um, you know, a premise if there's not that beautiful question, what if? You know, what if we take this crazy idea and mix it with this crazy idea? What happens? You know, that's always the, how things start. And, and the, the science, uh, sort of the history of science is quite interesting because many pioneering scientists that have really come up with new and, and very useful ideas uh, come up with these usually in sort of uh, hypnagogic states of mind or hypnopompic states of mind, dreaming, um, uh, what you call the random aspect. You know, it suddenly hit me and they get a good idea. They don't really know where it comes from. Uh, and there we drift into another kind of uh, interesting uh, dichotomy in a way, uh, whether magic is something that exists within us or traditionally uh, it's been very common to, to, you know, call it spirits, call it angels, demons, whatever. Uh, I, I don't buy that. I believe that we have everything in us and we can also take in, filter information from, uh, let's call it greater nature, and use whatever tools we have, both internal and external, uh, to interpret those data in a way. And that goes for, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to suggest, I mean, don't we have a huge problem here in terms of like the natural world is so vast and complex uh, and wonderful and huge. And then as sort of evolved primates, we have this tiny little ape brain to try and yeah. understand it all and we'll always we'll always fall short in that sense 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You're 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 right on the money there, as the Americans say. And I think that falling short, uh, we are doing the best we can, uh, most of us, and and sort of uh, bravely attempting to uh, figure out what the hell is going on. And that's what I meant um, earlier when I said that it's something that the magical aspect is something inherent in us and even genetic. Because if you look at how harsh and how primitive the conditions were when we were evolving from Neanderthals and, you know, these really sort of more uh, ape-like creatures uh, into Homo sapiens, there's still, you know, uh, hundreds and thousands of, of uh, years of fine-tuning and just basically trying to stay alive. So it's no wonder that people, you know, uh, took shelter in caves and, and worshipped the fire and, and that kind of atmospheric lifestyle, which is basically just a survival thing. And, and calling upon uh, weather gods, very primitive uh, forces, by calling them names and giving them symbolic uh, um, uh, stature, you know, in order to, to uh, communicate with them. Uh, that, I think, has been so important to us that it traveled on uh, genetically, and that's why we still have it today. You know, uh, it's the fight or flight instinct. There are many instincts that we can give fancy psychological, uh, you know, terminologies. Uh, but in essence, it's about trying to understand a chaotic world around us in order to make really fast decisions so that we can survive, so that I can survive, my family can survive, my little tribe, community, even town, even country, you know, culture. Uh, it's it's on that level, and that's why I think it's um, you can find a lot of uh, things in common when you look at these sort of big questions, but in in different cultures, comparing it and also looking back in history as far as we can, as far as there is a recorded history, and of course we can see that this thing that's usually called you know a pagan attitude, meaning basically uh, when agrarian culture took over from a nomadic culture, uh, then of course you had these um, uh, deities, pantheons of uh, forces stemming from the earth. You know, we give names to the forces that we are in need of to survive. Okay, Carl. Well, I really wanted to ask you about uh, Anton LaVey. I mean, may mm -hmm. firstly, maybe explain who this, this gentleman is and how you yeah. came to know him as well. Right, absolutely. Um, uh, Anton LaVey was uh, an American um, musician, and he, he was a you know, man of many trades, but he was very interested in the occult, but he sort of got a little bit disgruntled with whatever Hocus Pocus was being offered through you know, a commercialized American version uh, of the 1930s, 40s, when he grew up. And, and he sort of favored the uh, a dark side, kind of dark side psychology that was also kind of present in the culture if you compare gangster films and film noir of the late 40s as uh, opposed to uh, wonderful romantic comedies of the same era. There was this presence there uh, post-World War II, which was, of course, you know, very, very dark. And he grew up in that and he, he, he merged these things and eventually then in 1966 created uh, the Church of Satan. So he became like the high priest of the Church of Satan. He wrote the Satanic Bible, the Satanic Rituals and many other books which were in which he sort of codified and defined what his brand of Satanism uh, is. 
Uh, I got to know him in the late 80s, uh, towards the end of his life, because I was uh, already then a magical anthropologist. I was very interested in this thing called uh, occulture, you know, when the occult means, meets culture. And uh, got in touch with him and got along really well and met him on uh, several visits to the US in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, basically, uh, I had perhaps expected to talk a lot about, you know, the dark arts and magic because I was interested in that. But I was also very interested in movies. And he was also very interested in movies. So what we talked about was essentially uh, good old Hollywood movies from the golden era of, of uh, great American filmmaking. Oh, which movies? Well, he he really enjoyed film noir, you know, these sort of uh, stylish, atmospheric gangster films, uh, specifically from the late 40s. And of course, that's exactly when he, he uh, was in his formative years. Uh, but he was really an all... Uh, what do you call it, an all-devourer for very cool uh, films. Usually B-films, you know, B-movies, kind of trashy films. Uh, he loved films that had some kind of satanic theme. Um, and of course, there were many after he had become so public, uh, after um, creating the Church of Satan in the late 60s, Rosemary's Baby by Polanski, for instance, would be one of those. And of course, even the novel that is based on, also called uh, Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin, you know, Satan was sort of uh, in the air <laughs> at the time, perhaps as a, a reaction to, you know, the wishy-washy flower power uh, thing. I don't know why, but he loved movies. We watched a lot of movies together. Um, and it was usually stuff, American uh, studio films from the 40s and 50s. He loved Marilyn Monroe. He loved uh, Jane Mansfield. These, you know, wacky blondes, lots of comedies also. Just, you know, a good taste in film and music. Excellent. So, I mean, I, th I think there's a lot of misunderstandings around the doctrines or ideology of Satanism. I think there was certainly somewhat of a moral panic in response to it. And when I sort of kind of scratch away at the ideology and the tenets, it feels more like, you know, something that leans towards sort of hedonism, perhaps, rather yes. than anything anything overtly evil i think people see satan worship perhaps as something overtly evil maybe you can just clear yeah. this up for us yeah no absolutely um you know I, a couple of years ago no actually last year it came out i, I wrote a book called anton lavey and the church of satan it was based on a documentary film i made based on my memories you know what the hell happened back then and why was that so influential for me and then you come to to sort of analyze what it is and in that book I, I called him um, uh, Pop, Pop Nietzsche for, for uh, the American couches. And, and, and in a sense, um, it's true because he did take Nietzsche, you know, a Schopenhauer, and sort of this philosophy of will, and sort of stripped it down and reclothed it with this dramatic uh, aesthetics, uh, dramatic psychology. Uh, very, very cleverly done. And of course, it became very, very successful. It was right, you know, at the right time in the right place, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, but basically what it is, it's the same philosophy as Crowley uh, and many, many other sort of uh, intelligent magicians. Basically, you have have to do what you feel and think is right for you, not to be too influenced by, you know, any kind of authority. Um, it's not about being a rebel um, for its own sake, you know, um, but basically what gives your life meaning? 
you have no right but to do thy will, as Crowley wrote. You know, because once you've found out what gives you your life meaning, then if you shy away from that or stray from that path, you know, you will become very, very neurotic. And that, I think, is possibly the greatest danger to this kind of path. It's not the, uh, you know, hocus-pocus aspects or, or sort of demonic symbols, whatever. Yeah, I mean, a while back, I, I believe I may have read there was some sort of schism within the Church of Satanism. I think it was something to do with the idea of people believing in a sort of literal corporeal Satan yes. versus those who accepted him as, I suppose, a concept. Is that mm -hmm. something you're aware of? Yeah, absolutely. That that happened in the uh, 70s when some people broke away from the Church of Satan and formed a group called the Temple of Set. And they were much more... Um, interested in communicating with uh well let's call it uh let's call it an anthropomorphic kind of beast you know uh some kind of projection or perhaps you know a, a reality i certainly don't buy that i think lavey used the symbol of satan uh because of its literal meaning you know the adversary the opposer the accuser which is a very healthy thing it's in a way like the um our immune systems are also very satanic in that they go against whatever is wrong in the system in the organism um, and for him it was a dramatic symbol that could be used for his own benefit by you know gaining a lot of uh, attention and and members and you know media attention so and that was his uh, strategy whereas i think people who are trying to commune with like an occult force that should take on some kind of form, you know, tangible form, whatever. I think it's almost like borderline psychosis, you know, because you're striving to meet something that you inherently know doesn't exist, you know. So it's a it's kind of a massive projection. And then to add insult to injury in a way, you try to command that thing, that projection that is basically um, a ghost from your own mind in a way. So there was a little schism there. Uh, I think um, to each his own, you know, everybody can you know, worship whatever demons they like. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Lavean Satanism is very, very rational. It's, it's atheist. That was going to uh, be my next question, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's, it's you know, rationally skeptic. Yeah, I've always thought that. I mean, I, and it's the funny thing is that there's often this conflation in America with atheism and Satanism, but for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in reality, it's perfectly plausible to accept the philosophy of Satanism as a, you know as a symbol, this idea of hedonistic yeah. life, and reject any sort of monotheism or any deity, things like that. And would would uh, Levey himself self describe as godless or or atheist? Uh, yeah, I would say so. However, that, that was actually one of the premises in my research project that, you know, became the film and then uh, eventually the book, um, because I interviewed a lot of people who had met him at about the same time as I was there uh, and um, had this question, you know, uh, did you ever have the impression that LaVey believed in for instance, you know, the power of magic and that kind of thing, or, or some kind of, of religious um, facet or, or, or aspect and uh, got, you know, fairly homogenous replies in that sense uh, that uh, he was definitely, you know, a skeptic and an atheist in the sort of that classical monotheist way. He certainly wasn't. He was raised, uh, I think, what it's called, like a, a secular Jew, you know, uh, so there was no religious um, 
imposition or, or uh, imposing on, on him. Uh, however, he did believe in uh, what we talked about in magic, and that's also a response. Uh, I, I um, interpreted him as believing in magic, and many others who were there at the same time did that also. Basically, he gave credence, he gave validity to his own empirical research about if you do a ritual for this specific purpose, does it have an effect? What kind of effect? Is it a desired effect or an undesired effect, et cetera, et cetera. Then, of course, being immersed in a lot of lore and objects, you know, talismans from occult history in a way, and and uh, being able to create something that he called the total environment, which is very beneficial to to uh, you know psychic health in a way to control your environment, whether it's just a corner of your room or a room or your entire home, like aesthetically perfect, uh, that gives you a lot of uh, uh, power and and also. Uh, potential for regeneration, you know, what they call recharging your batteries in a much better way than if you share a space with someone who is completely vampirizing it. That's one of his key uh, concepts, the total environment. And he was living in a total environment which was filled with magic, I mean, magical artifacts, uh, magical history, books, of course. Um, and uh, it did bring him uh, not only like inspiration, but it did give him uh, food for thought, uh, research material, etc., uh, etc. Et so I do believe that he believed in magic as this kind of uh, experimental kind of science and psychology. Uh, but I do believe that he was an atheist in the classical uh, monotheistic, uh, I don't know, perspective. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it just yeah. strikes me when I hear you use the word magic, and I think it slightly triggers me a little bit. And I suppose it's because <laughs> when I hear you speaking about it, you, you speak very rationally. Um, you, you're obviously someone who's interested in empiricism as well. And yes. I, I just wonder, is the word magic necessary for what you're describing? Would the word, you know, the unknown or mystery yeah. not be more sufficient and just oh, not muddy I the water as much? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's there we have the, the key problem. It's, it's muddy waters. And, it, and I think, unfortunately, there will, that will always be the case. And then, you know, I mentioned the term uh, a while ago, the occulture, which I think is very relevant in the sense that uh, that shows where things usually end up if they're strong enough. You know, if there's something in the occult, whether, you know, from occult history, that's been regarded as hocus pocus and just, you know, baloney. But that is strong enough to move into the mainstream. Then, you know, there you have what I call an occulturation process. It moves from the hidden and into the visible. And when it, things are visible, they're definitely less dramatic, um, less prone to attack, and also much more usable because, uh, you know, uh, occultism is not only about, you know, poetry and, and, and that sort of aesthetic stuff. It's also hands-on proto-science, you know, people come up with ideas that they try, and then some of these things can move into the mainstream and uh, make a change there. And of course, you don't have to call that magic at all. Uh, you don't have to call it occult or occulture or acculturation. You can just call it, for instance, um, movements within the history of ideas. Good answer, Carl. And I suppose, well, what sort of label or philosophy would you say best describes your your worldview in general? Then on 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 you know issues such as this. 
Yeah, no, I, I would say, I would hope that I'm open-minded. I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, tolerant, uh, you know, in terms of other cultures and people and, and sort of uh, digressing or divergent opinions about these things. I do not like uh, rabid monotheistical points of view. It's like it kills off any kind of uh, uh, human intelligence, basically. And you, you, you're locked in a groove and you cannot move away from it. I think it's pathetic. And I think that's one of the, the main reasons why we're, we're going to hell, basically. You know, we're in dire straits and I think you have to shape up. And if I may, I mean, this is the new book, Source Magic. These words, I think we have a kind of source that sort of uh, we're all connected to it. Let's call it, you know, some kind of shamanic approach to the thing. But it's also a holistic one, meaning that we are literally part of the same organism. And if a huge chunk of this organism cannot think outside of the box, then we're headed for, for uh, well, let's call it the apocalypse, whatever, Anthropocene apocalypse. Um, and I think we have much uh, better things to do, much more potential to create very interesting things. And one way of getting to that mind frame and that inspiration is to, you know, respect divergent opinions but also be open-minded and and looking at things and validate things that you find within yourself you know um it's not about outer sources and forces it, we have a beautiful psychology beautiful minds uh, and uh, we can communicate in so many amazing ways and it's a shame that we're we're uh, not doing more with it that's a great point carl and i was pretty much nodding along to everything there so i, I appreciate your time i've really enjoyed speaking to you this has flown by uh, maybe you can just let our listeners and viewers know where they can find more of your writing and work absolutely as the previous speaker i think the best thing is just to go to the like the major online booksellers for instance the one beginning with an a and on that uh, <laughs> in that system i have an author page for instance and that's probably the easiest way to find all my books i also have a website which is carlabrahamson.com it's easy excellent thanks for speaking to me carl i've really enjoyed it thank you very much thanks all the best Bye. take care bye, bye. now